so this is my grandmother. Um, she was, at this point, in her early 20s. One of the things about doing this book was I never really knew what date it was because people didn't really have birth certificates. But you know, in a general sort of way, she was in her early 20s. I'd say that she probably already, she already had about three or four children. Um, no, four children. Um, she was, this was taken a little bit after the Italians invaded Ethiopia or Abyssinia as it was often then called. Uh, it was taken actually by an Italian photographer. Um, she had um, just had her hair braided and she was wearing sort of clean clothes and uh, you know sort of had, had sort of got all dressed up and her husband said well you know there's a photographer there's you know a photographer down the road why don't we just you know so oh, no, what's that and then she found herself standing in front of an Italian photographer which I think explains the expression on her face which isn't which is sort of wary I think um, she also um, you can't see it which is I guess one was what one of the, her great regrets was that she, she's actually got a baby on her back wrapped in a shawl so this shawl is is actually sort of holding a baby on her back and one of her great regrets was that she didn't take him off her back and hold him in her arms so that he was part of the picture because um, he didn't actually survive into adulthood so she would have had a picture of him and didn't but that's that's who that is the, sto the story of the the front cover um tell us about the I, I mean, I really loved this book, and I was so interested in the portrait of your grandmother as an interesting woman living in interesting times. But also, I think there is something particularly appealing about books that are about an interesting person, but that are written by someone with a connection to that person. It, it sounds like a very obvious thing to say. It is an obvious thing to say, but the literal link, um, it, it sort of brings it to life in a way. So I wonder, would you just tell us about the decision to write about your grandmother, and then perhaps how you went about it? Um, I didn't sort of start off having decided to write about her. I kind of started off listening. Um, she was a she told stories really well. She was she was incredibly charismatic. She sort of told these things, and you sort of thought. And I'm a journalist in my day job, and I have this thing where I sort of I just write things down, or I sort of or I have a tape, you know, it's an old-fashioned micro cassette tape recorder. And at one point, I was just like, well, I just you know. But this is 20 years ago, actually over 20 years ago now, I would sort of put the tape recorder down. There's a story. I don't really know what I'm going to do with it, but it's there, you know. And so there is about, I mean, it didn't happen that often. I didn't, you know, I saw her sort of off and on. Um, and about 10 years after this, I suddenly, you know, I started to think, well, maybe I should, you know, I can string, you know, do something with this. And it was also part of, you know, can I tell stories in this way? Can I... I mean, we, all of this is in Amharic. She didn't speak English, Amharic, uh, and in a sort of very beautiful Amharic from northern Ethiopia, uh, from Gondor, which is where she grew up and where she lived uh, most of her life. Um, and I wanted, uh, I started to want to see if I could render it in English in some of the music that I could hear in Amharic, if that, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, so it was kind of quite a gradual process. Would you read us a little bit, please? Sure. Um, I, I, I'll read a little bit right from the beginning, um, which is, um, yeah, is right from the beginning. And Agame, which is, the Ethiopian calendar has 13 months. And so I, and the sort of book is structured 
according to the months of the Ethiopian year. Um, and this is the 13th month. <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> um, <laughs> it's amazing. I can just sort of watch it, kind of, you know. Um, the 13th month. Rains broken by occasional sunshine. Examination of boys in church school to decide who will be deacons. End of fiscal year. New Year's Eve. Four coals huddled into a low clay pot, glowing red through their films of ash. My grandmother reached in among the folds of her shawl and drew from a small pouch a kernel of frankincense. She dropped it among the coals and at once it melted, hissing, releasing sweet smoke that rose and tangled with the smell of roasting coffee, of rain gathering beyond the open door, of unfurling earth. If it rains on Raphael's day, my grandmother said, the water is holy. When we were children, we'd tear off our clothes and dance through it, singing. And if there was a rainbow, it was as though Mary's sash had been thrown across the sky. Above our heads, on the corrugated iron roof, the rain began. Thud, 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 thud. Each drop carrying with it a sense of great chill distances travelled, of interrupted speed. And all through Agame, anyone young went down to the rivers before dawn, said my grandmother. You had to get to the water before the birds could taste it. She held the round-bellied pot high. Sorry. So the coffee clattered into the little porcelain cups. Added sugar or salt or tiny tear-shaped leaves of rue passed the cups around. I've never liked rivers, though, nor lakes, she said, not since I was a small child. But even though I was afraid, I begged to be allowed to go. I was staying with my grandmother. She was kinder than my aunt, especially when I wet the bed. She'd just turn the jundi over, change the bedclothes. She was patient with me and loving, like my mother. And at once my own grandmother was crying, tears spilling into her shawl. Aizosh, Nanne, I said. Aizosh, take heart. She answered. Yes, child. May you be saved. Aizosh, wiping the wet away. I miss my mother, she said. I know, I answered. I know. So, what happened at the river? Steering her back to distract her as much as anything. Pushing her on as I did more and more often, knowing many of the stories, but knowing also that there were more, told and retold for decades, shaped, reshaped, or sometimes, when enough time had passed, cracked open in the telling. What did you say? How did you feel? And what do you feel now? Sometimes the answers were immediate. Well, I said this, of course. Oh, or no. I don't remember the date, or the time, only that the Feast of St John was approaching and I had so much work to do. Or, not now, I've told you that before. Though often you could tell it was a rote demurral that she wanted to continue. Other times the, the reply was a small smile and a twist into shyness. No, no, these things are not spoken of. When were you happy? I asked once. I'm never happy, came the answer. I'm always crying. All of my life is painted in tears. The third round of coffee had been drunk. The dregs slopped out into the yard. The smoke drifted into the corners and disappeared. Nanne held out her hands, palms heavenward. May he bring justice to the wrong, to the poor, to the oppressed. May he clothe the naked and liberate the crucified. May he protect us and bless us. I dip my head. Amen. We watched as sunlight flared through the steam rising from the wet ground and through the open door. Birds sang, 
At last I was allowed to go, she said. We left our houses excited in the dark and walked down into the valley. The Kaha had been filling all the rainy season. It moved fast and deep. The other children took off their clothes and jumped in. They cupped the water in their hands and threw it high. They laughed and splashed and wrestled. I edged forward. The water crept towards my toes. I started to move forward again, but I couldn't bear it. I screamed and I ran. She laughed, a laugh that took her over as utterly as her tears had a moment earlier. A complicated laugh, deep and delighted, but serious also. For in fact, she was still afraid and always would be, because she remembered the child she had been so clearly, because in many ways, she was still that child. Thank you. Um, the book's dedicated to your daughter, uh, which I loved, um, and you start telling the story of your grandmother or letting her tell the story through you when she is a child, hmm. um, when she's about eight, is that right? I know about that eight, as yeah. far as we know. Um, perhaps just tell us what happens at that, that, at that age, what are her first memories dominated by in that way? Um, she was married when she was eight. Um, it was a family arrangement, as you know, it happened, you know, marriage is contract as, a, as opposed to a actual chosen thing. And so one of her main memories of that age was a wedding ceremony. Um, so that's sort of where it begins. And I sort of, and I go back a little bit, you know, to how she came to be and stuff. But yes, that is why. And I really liked all the descriptions of the clothes the you know all the stuff that she's wearing because i thought that it's i could see that that's how you know because my son's nine and i was thinking if he was being married and then had to remember it what would he remember and actually what he would be remembering would be what he wasn't wasn't allowed to do as a result of there <laughs> being some kind of festivity certainly if anybody was making him wear anything and probably something about the food um so did your grandmother tell you did, did she remember the clothes and then yeah. tell that to you and then you put the detail down? Was that how that worked? Yeah, I mean, she, she, remembered, she remembered what the jewellery was, she remembered the, you know, the, the, the clothes that were sent with her, the clothes that she, that she wore. That, that is the kind, yeah, that's the kind, the, the fact that she wasn't allowed to dance because mm. she was very keen, she was very keen on dancing and she wasn't allowed to because it was, I mean, it was a bit superstitious. There was a, there was a sort of disease, I mean, I think it was a fever. It was like probably typhus or something. And there was quite a lot of people um, falling very ill. And there was a kind of, you know, it, it felt there was a sort of bad energy. You sort of didn't want to attract any more bad energy. So you didn't, you know, you didn't dance. You didn't seem to be happy because it was attracting mm -hmm. some kind of, you know, punishment. And tell us about the man that she was marrying, a very interesting man. Um, he was um, he was in the sort of final stages of his training as a priest in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, part of what happened by marrying was he was he became a sort of full-fledged priest. He would, in the end, be um, he was from a neighbouring. Um, one of the issues about the marriage was he was from a neighbouring province. Um, you know, a bit like sort of. I don't know, Cornwall, Devon, you know, except that he might as well, it might as well have been a foreign country. They were very kind of, you know, can't be marrying him, he's from somewhere else. Um, so he, he was, he was had unknown parents, all that kind of stuff. But he wrote, he was very, um, 
intellectually, you know, he, he, he did very well and he was a poet um, and he rose quite fast in the church. So she found herself married to somebody who was very senior, in fact, in the Orthodox Church. And there was a bit of disagreement, wasn't there, about, I just really love the, uh, the threat. There's a bit of disagreement in the family about whether or not she should marry him, <laughs> shouldn't she? Um, yes. And her, her, her father wasn't, her father just thought it was, so this priest was beneath, because she, he was very keen on counting who he might be related to and how important they were. And, you know, he, he, he had this thing of sort of counting houses as far back as he possibly could and trying to get as many, you know, royalty. I mean, it's very tenuous, but it's, <laughs> But that was what he liked, and he didn't. He wasn't having this. Um, and his, yeah, and, his, and her mother was thought she was a bit young. And the um, look at me, cried his sister. Look at me, I'm barren. Is that what you want for her? I'll curse you for your cruelty. Yeah. Then I like the less. I like the next bit. If you do not marry her to this man, I will hate you forever. As Mary is my witness, I will never visit your graveside, and you will never stand at mine. I read that. I thought that is a very powerful way to persuade somebody of something, it isn't it? And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, I mean, she had a, I, the main moving force behind this was um, her aunt, who was quite sort of, who was also married to a priest and had this kind of, you know, this is what you will do. And I think she saw that he was, she saw that he was gifted and, you know, conscientious and, and would do well. So she thought she, I guess she thought she was doing my grandmother a favour. Um, and then tell us what happened next so she travels a long way to mm. live with the man she 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 does she, i mean they so they had this ma massive wedding and usually there's in in one house and then it's in the other family's house and then you know um and actually quite soon after they married he he went a lot of in ethiopia at that time everything happened by personal petition so you could, you know if you wanted a job you turned up and stood outside the person's house who might give you a job so quite soon after they were married he left and he went to Addis Ababa, and he basically spent his days for a couple of years haunting the courts. Um, uh, it was the em an empress on the throne at the time, Empress Zoditu, um, and about sort of a year into this process, he got what he wanted, and he was given a church to be um, to be his. To, it was it was a it was an, uh, a church that had been very grand, but um, had been raised over and over again, sort of by the dervish. Um, and from the Mahdists from Sudan, and then by Theodros, who was actually an Ethiopian emperor but had a massive grudge against Gondor. So he said, you know, can I, can I take this church and rebuild it? And actually that church, I mean, in the end, I sort of felt it was, it was another character in this book that I had to deal with because this church became like the center of their lives. It was called Baata, which is, um, which is, which is the word for the presentation of Mary to the temple, it's, which is a feast. And so they, they celebrated this feast, they rebuilt this church from scratch because it had been burned to the ground. Um, and you know, so, and he was, he both ran that and in the end he ran the 44 churches of Gonda. And tell us a bit more about religion generally and your mm. grandmother's beliefs. Um, Orthodox Christianity, which they were, I mean, it is, it has very old roots. Um, it, I think the, it's meant to have arrived in Ethiopia in about the fourth century um, AD. It has, which means it actually carries a great deal of uh, Jewish um, inflection with it. So food rules and 
it is um, it is part of the warp and weft of everything, like of language, of, I mean, one of the reasons why I structured the book as I did was because, you know, if, I, if I'd started to try to work out what date anything happened, I would, I, I would have been there for the rest of my life. I, but I, if I could do it according to saints' days, then suddenly everything fell into place. So it's, it's sort of, because the month is structured according to which saint you're, you're sort of celebrating, what feast, and if you ask her when any of her children were born, for example, she wouldn't be able to tell you. It's just like, well, sometime in this decade, just about. Um, but she would tell you it was, you know, the feast of, Johann, of St. John, and it was at this time of day, and it was, you know, so it, is, it runs, you know, every week, Wednesday and Friday are fasting days, everything is, everything is structured according to, to the church, and, and the church also has, you know, the priests and religion, and priests in particular have this extraordinarily um, power, I guess is the word, of it, you know, so every family has their own confessor, every, you know, it's, it's incredibly woven into what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, how, you know, it's utterly part of everything. And I enjoyed the way the, the prayers in the book, the bits of text that are in the book. Where's that taken from? Um, they would have been the things that she said over and over again, and said in the church over and over again. Um, so there are a lot of the first part of her life was dominated by having children. She, in the end, had 10 pregnancies. And in childbirth, um, there's often that somebody, like a deacon, will sit at the door of the... And, and read from the homilies of uh, Raphael because he was meant to, you know, he was a sort of patron saint of birth. And so it's almost like a sort of backdrop that that's so, so I use the words of those homilies. Um, there's the Wudase Mariam, um, I'm trying to remember, yeah, the Book of the Praise of Mary, uh, sort of list of, <laughs> um, the Arganona Wudase. So the, uh, but they, um, actually, one. Uh, Ernest, I don't know if anybody knows what, uh, Wallace Budge, um, but he was an Egyptologist, but he also uh, spoke Gurs, which is the old church language, and he has these extraordinary translations of the liturgy. And so I found it incredibly useful because her days were structured by this, and then I had this amazing translation that I could use as a kind of thread through it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and also, a lot of it's about Mary. So a lot of it is about the festivals of Mary and the degree in you know, her relationship to to Mary. Um, so as you said, a lot of her life was dominated by the ha the having of children. Um, so there was sort of a, there was a whole personal thing that dominated her life, wasn't it? And then how she intersected with the political, historical, mm. wider things. But um, would you tell us a bit more about her? Her marriage, the the, mm. the marriage, and how that worked for her, and the frustrations within the marriage. So it feels like a really modern way, actually. That <laughs> I felt so anachronistic as I said that. Tell us about the frustrations in your grandmother's marriage, but just <laughs> bring it for us. Well, I mean, it's it's modern, but it's also as old as the hills. You know, marriage is it, it, it's kind of so. You know, the, the the context might be different, but you know, the ability to be oneself and you know, or not is probably um, the same. Um, I mean, she was a child when she was married, um, and he was about 20 years older. Um, so he was in a slightly very complicated 
position where she was still, you know, she was, he kind of had to raise her as well as we married her. Um, so there were decisions about education. She started to learn to read. Um, but the tutor who was hired, I think, reading between the lines, he thought he was, she was quite bright and it would mean trouble. So he persuaded her husband that she should not continue to learn to read. In the end, she taught herself to read in her 60s. Um, the, um, I think they both found it very difficult. And she, I remember her saying to me that um, she only began to speak to him as an equal after she'd had three or four children. And then, then, then it was kind of, then it was a marriage between adults. And, but before that, it was, and, and you know, he was, he had a temper, he was very jealous, he knew she was quite beautiful, he wouldn't really let her go anywhere, he kind of, and every, you know, and that, that was very difficult, because she was, you know, she wanted to play, apart from anything else. So, um, I think, I think those, that first decade, and then obviously there was the Italian invasion, and I think that was a bin, I mean, the sort of, the stresses that were surround, they surrounded everybody, you know, would have been echo, just were echoed everywhere. They were echoed in in people's private lives. They were, you know, you, you, he knew that if he said the wrong thing or seen or was seen to be particularly in the early days of the Italian invasion, you know, there, there's a scene that I try to describe. Well, I describe it because she describes him coming home. Um, where he was asked to come to the main square and it was a couple of priests that were colleagues of his and he what he had been asked to do was to come and observe their execution and he, he, she remembers him coming home and just he said you know he didn't eat for two weeks so you know so it was it was difficult to learn how to be married to each other um but it was also the context was sort of Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and one of those children was your father. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about your dad. Um, well, he was he was the third. Yes. Uh, it's funny because I sort of wrote this book, and like, when, when there's that many pregnancies, you're just like, now which one came before? Uh, he's the oldest boy. Um, he it was it was quite a difficult birth. Um, made more difficult by the fact that the baby previous had, had died a cot death. So I think she, she, was, she was terrified. Um, and a three day, see that, that was, you know, that's where the sort of reading of liturgy at the same time. So, so uh, it was a three day labor and, and, <laughs> and they were, and she basically, when he was born, the deacon stopped reading and she named him the word that he stopped on. <laughs> uh, which happened to be Udamariam, which is hand of Mary, and the sort of you know, so it's, it was from the miracles of Mary, um, and yeah, I mean, I think he he was the eldest son. He his father. I mean, in the end, my grandfather died actually when he was about fifteen. So he became very quickly, and you know, not head of the family, um, which was um, I think not an easy easy thing to do um, uh, and you know at, initially they were all sort of educated in the church but but the church you know my grandfather had he was he my grandfather died in prison he was um, there were issues with the sort of political issues with the church um, and one of the things he said to my grandmother was I just don't want my children to have anything to do with priests anymore so 
he took him out of church school and sent him to a modern school. Um, and then he won a scholarship to Canada, which is where he met my mum. <laughs> so, um, so he was a doctor. He became, yeah, yeah. And a lot, I mean, her children did lots of interesting things, didn't they? Yes, I mean, one of the things that happened, um, she, one of the first sort of, I mean, ordinary people forced into extraordinary circumstances find strength that they didn't know they possessed. And so when he was first imprisoned, he, she visited him in, in prison and he said, well, could you, you know, she hadn't, she hadn't left really the house. She'd sort of cooked and, you know, they had parties in the house and stuff, but she hadn't really been in the wider world. And he said, could you go to Addis and petition for my release? Could you petition the emperor for my release? So suddenly this sort of woman in her early 30s who's never really is, is getting on a plane to go to Addis Ababa and going to court, and, and she did meet the emperor. Um, and um, so you kind of... Um, the yeah so I'm <laughs> I've got myself in a complete tangle there because <laughs> I'm trying to remember <laughs> trying to remember what the main question was. I was but. asking you about her children, so your father's siblings and the uh, interesting oh, things yes. they do. So what what yeah I, I was getting there in the end, um, but what happened was that he he was not able to help with the court case, the emperor, um, but what he did instead was to provide education for her children. So he just gave, he sort of said, okay, well, I will send them all to boarding school. And suddenly she had these, you know, um, they all went to boarding school and then they went on, you know, I have, you know, my dad, so my dad <laughs> studied in Canada in English. I have an aunt who did a first degree in Czech and then a PhD in German. Um, another one who did economics in Bulgarian, another, you know, so they went, they sort of went all over the world and did these extraordinary things. And which was, it was so far, you know, that, that sort of classic thing of, giving your children a gift which you wouldn't think twice about giving and then suddenly realizing that they that there's this sort of you've opened up this distance between mm. them and you yeah. um which i think was you know uh, a complicated thing for her to manage but mm. they did they went you know they went all over the world and, and then when your father told her he was getting married <laughs> i like that bit tell us about that um well i think she i mean I think I think if it at all was supposed to happen as it was traditionally, well, she would have chosen somebody for him. But she felt at this point, you know, he was a trained doctor who had lived abroad at that point for ten years in Montreal. You know, well, you know, this is not, this is beyond me. Um, so, Mama, you know, he said, well, you know, I've I found somebody um, I love and want to. I want to be with, and she's Canadian. <laughs> um, I think initially she was probably a little bit concerned about this. It wasn't quite what she intended, um, but she was she was brilliant about it. She was very, um, you know, if that's what if 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 she makes you happy, and you make each other happy. You know, that's I will I will give you my blessing. You know. Although it was, you know, they did have to work out how to talk to each other. It was, it, you know, there's a lot of. Initially, my mum actually, you know, in the end, she's from sort of rural Ontario, but she learned Amharic and practiced medicine in Amharic in the end. So the conversation was not, you know, necessarily that difficult. But it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting. They, they, they learned a lot from each other. <laughs> and then didn't she end up, was it your, was it your mum's father who did the plans for the yes, house? Yes, I mean, this is where, you know, there's all sorts of things that are, 
So my father was the, the son of a Orthodox priest, and my mum is the daughter of a United Church, you know, United Church of Canada minister. And actually, turns out there's lots to say if you. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he also um, she had li she, my grandfather built a house, but it, you know it, it didn't have plumbing and it didn't and and so one of the things that my parents did the, the, when they came back to Ethiopia to live was um, they thought they would build my grandmother a house before they, they had one of their own. And my grandfather, yeah, he drew the plans. He kind of drew the plans and directed, you know, he came, he came to Ethiopia before, just before the revolution and taught, taught English at school and, and helped build a house. Before we get too much into the, into the modern day, I do, do tell us a bit about the food, because I just loved all the descriptions of the food. Um, so just tell us a bit about her, her kind of... I like the, house, the housekeeping. I, I mean, in general, I think, in books, I enjoy the domestic details. Mm. So tell us a bit about her housekeeping, what her role was, the sort of food she was eating. Well, if you, you know, if you're, if you're the sort of what increasingly matriarch of the house. I mean, it is, it is what takes up your days. And um, she was good at it. She was very interested in the detail of it. Um, and it isn't, it isn't a sort of straightforward thing, necessarily. If you want to make, um, say, shuro, which is, uh, is a sort of a, a sauce made of chickpeas, you've got, you've got to take the raw chickpeas, you've got to dry them, you've got to pick, you've got to grind, everything is, everything is from first principles, as it were. So everything is, so, you know, they had this yearly party in which, to which hundreds of people came. You would have to start preparing for that, you know, bringing the, people would have to start bringing the honey to make the mead, people would have to, you know, months in advance. And it was something she was very good at talking about. It was, you know, it, there was a kind of, there was a kind, there was a huge skill in it, and there was a kind of skill in which you announced your station in a way, as, a way as well. And it also gave her, I think, you know, she was good at running things, <laughs> and she enjoyed, you know, because uh, you know, in these in these parties, she would she would suddenly have these sort of loads of people doing what she said, and that was brilliant. <laughs> but yes, yeah, no food was a. I mean, it's interesting. I think the domestic. Your point about the domestic is very is because. One of the things I thought, of, you know, I am trying to tell, you know, she lived to be nearly 100, um, and I sort of tried to tell about 100 years of Ethiopian history at the same time and the points at which she intersected with it. But what is sort of important, I think, is, is that domestic happens all the time. So when you, when you read the history of, you know, usually history is from the sort of point of view of the famous man who was, who was but, you know, somebody had to cook for him and somebody had to... And all of that happens all the time, and all the sort of psychological ramifications wash through to the domestic. And I guess that was something that I was really interested in. I think so, and I found it very interesting to read. So my favourite... Uh, and I always feel embarrassed to admit this, because I feel I should be sort of saying, oh, you, oh yes, you know, the, you know, Abyssinia, etc., etc. But my favourite detail in the whole thing... Well, not in the whole thing, but the, bit, the detail I love about the invasion is that... There's these Italians, as well as everything else, they bring this different food with them. 
And she, when she sees this food, the pasta, it just looks like hookworm to her, and she thinks it looks <laughs> revolting. And, some, and something else she uses as a paste. And, and, yeah. and, I, and it's that. That, for me, that's the, that's the human bit. You know, you can read about sort of, I don't know, battles and people mentioned in dispatches and stuff, but I just actually love that. Mm. It takes you right into it, doesn't it? Then you suddenly, you're in the shoes of this woman looking at the pasta, thinking, what's that? And it kind of doesn't matter the fact that she'd have been saying that in a different language from me. I just I get that moment. I mm. then feel I'm right in the in the history. Mm. So I think that's sometimes what the domestic details can mm. do to. And I think I mean I think one. I mean it's it's weird. I think sometimes the harder you concentrate on those, even though even though they're unusual details, the harder you look at those little, the more. I mean. It, you may disagree, but the more universal it mm. makes it in a way, mm. because you're kind of very much in the sort of sense world, yeah. if that makes sense. I do. I, actually, I do think that with all writing, it's the specific somehow that makes things universal. Mm. So far more than sort of you know whatever you're reading, far more than lots of pontificating about why something is the way it is. It's often in the it's the detail of something mm. that that puts you into it. Um, and that, I guess that's one of the reasons. I mean, I could have. It's. I've chose very much to talk, to tell it from her point of view to the extent I possibly could to make it to sort of try and immerse the reader in in her world. And I mean, and I and actually weird. You know, the, the bit I read, I am talking from my point of view, but most of it is entirely from her point of view. And that was one of the reasons. It was like to try and, in, you know, to say this this. This is the world on its own terms, and I'm not going to distract by standing outside and yeah, theorising yeah. about it. Inserting my own point of view and my own context into it. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually, because thinking about it from the other way around, when you're teaching life writing or looking at work in progress, quite often what you have to tell the person who is writing the story of their grandfather or whatever it is, is that they need to take themselves out of the narrative more. They're always in it telling you, the reader, what to think, and telling you, the reader, what, you know. Of course, my grandmother had never seen spaghetti bolognese because it hasn't happened then, and it's not as effective as <laughs> <Yes. laughs> No, exactly. So yeah. I did think that was a very effective, the way you did that. Tell us a bit more about that. You know, you're not, although you're, you're present in the book, isn't it? We know that you're writing about mm. your grandmother, but you're not very present in it as an authorial voice. Mm. Um, no, that was a very deliberate choice. It was. It was. I wanted to see through. You know, it, you then you then give yourself challenges you didn't necessarily intend to do because if you do it, well, there were two reasons for it. One was that the it was the immersion, and the other was um, that it was. I was very clear that it was a subjective, like I wasn't making any pretense to telling an objective history of anything, mm -hmm. and it. And I also was very aware that I mean, you will know as well from writing family, writing about your family. Other, you know, somebody even very close to you in your family will have an entirely different view on the matter. So, I said, I, you know, I need to do it from her point of view, so that it's so cl it's clear that it's what she said to me, mm -hmm. and it's not that I'm, you know. Um, so, it's yeah. So you kind of um, make it, it becomes it becomes a way to. Look, and you, you end up with challenges that you just didn't expect, one of which is if you've got a point of view, there's all sorts of stuff she didn't see, um, she, and how do you manage that? But you want to be able to say it because you're also telling, you're also telling a history at the same time. Um, I mean, I was lucky in that she met 
because of her husband or because of her, you know, through her children or whatever, she met a lot of the major figures of the Ethiopian 20th century. So I was lucky in my subject in that way. <laughs> so you could, but but you you have to end you end up finding ways of smuggling in, you know, you know people, you know conversations that she had or smuggling in the history. But you have to, but again, you, you can't do like a data dump of, of, yeah. of information. It's kind of like, well, this is, um, and there's whole sections that she didn't see and didn't, mm. you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting technical challenge. It, it, it's, I think of it in my head, and I say this sometimes, I think it was the central heating problem. So if you're writing a historical novel or a piece of social history from someone's perspective and you're setting it, say, in the First or Second World War, one of the things was in the winter, everyone was cold because there was no central heating. But if your perspective is then, you can't tell the reader that everybody is cold because there's no central heating. So you have to work out how to say that there's, remind your reader a bit that there's no central heating, but without raising the whole central heating thing. <laughs> so it's yes. continually that. How do, you, no, how do you remind your modern day audience that things are slightly different? Anyway, I think you do it in perfection. So, uh, Thank you. And, um, I mean, the other thing you have is, is, you, is if, you talk, if you're talking to somebody, it's their world, so it doesn't occur to them to tell you what it looked like because mm -hmm. it's their, it's the wall, it's the wallpaper. They don't see it, mm -hmm. but you have to try and describe it without seeming to describe it. it's fun. Were there areas that she was comfortable about talking about, needed more prompting, all that kind of stuff? Were there? Would she have had? Um, would Would she have had? Uh, you know, sort of taboos that we might have differently or um not not very different i mean there's 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 a, you know, a lot of it's very recognizable i think i think it's a funny thing i think people once their parents or grandparents they don't get asked very much or you know their childhood seems a long time ago and 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 their role is very much to be a parent or a grandparent and and I think that there will have been a long time where they aren't necessarily asked particular questions. So I think, you know, there are some stories that she told all the time, and then other things where I kind of went, oh, okay, let's fill in the gaps. Um, there would be stuff that she remembered that she hadn't talked about, or, it, mm. or, or the other thing is, it, the other thing is, if you've lived for uh, nearly a hundred years, you know, your viewpoint does change on things, and I think. I think maybe you know some some of the ways in which she thought about her own childhood changed, for example. And mm -hmm. I think the question, you know, questioning was mm -hmm. um, questioning her made her think about things in in ways. And, and and then you you know you you end up being uncomfortable because you suddenly realise that you think things that you didn't realise you thought. Yeah. If that makes sense. And your dad was often helping you, wasn't he? And he was writing his own yes. books. Tell yes. us a bit about his projects. Um. Well, my, my dad wanted to write about his father. Um, he wrote it in Amharic first, because uh, his, his father you know, was, was very, did become very eminent, but he was also a church poet um, in this, is a poetry called Kene, which is untranslatable, basically, because it's, it, it, it depends on an extraordinary familiarity with the Bible, but also because of the way Amharic works, it's, it, you can do some very sophisticated punning on various. On, you can easily say four things at the same time, and they'll just be the same words. And um, he was very, very good at that. So, and so he spent a long time collecting this poetry. But what we did, we sort of sit in the living room with my grandmother, you know, apart from with a beer, and just kind of 
and I would ask questions, and, and my Amharic got much better. <laughs> but, when I, but when I ran out of vocabulary, he would help me translate. And then it's very, very helpful to have somebody, and then sometimes to have somebody who remembers before you were born, like so he remembered his childhood. So there'd be things which did not occur to me to ask, and he'd be like, well, what's about that? So we did quite a lot of interviewing together. Um, his book is quite different from mine. It's very much about his father, and it's very sort of, you know, my dad. My dad was a scientist, and so there's, there's a certain, you know, there's a very, you know, um, but and half of it's a sort of biography, and half of it's the collected, you know, poetry. Um, but yeah, no, it was good, and and you know, he came with me to sort of, you know, we went to the, we went to the monastery that my grandmother wanted to enter at one point because she basically had enough. <laughs> so she, so she wanted to be a nun, and they persuaded her against it. Um, but we went there, and you know, and he helped me organise a um, a horse. I, I wanted I wanted to know how it felt to be in the landscapes in the way that she was. So I rode a horse to what you know, did, followed some of the the ways that she that she followed. I mean, I was a little cross because I couldn't find a mule, and it was a horse. But you know, I. It was, and he helped me organise that. You know, so there was a, he was very involved. And so I mean, so quite a lot of his siblings. Mm -hmm. um, some of the some of the tapes I have, there's at least sort of six people talking at once. And, uh, <laughs> 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 like who's what? What? Um, I'm going to ask you, lovely audience, for questions after my next one. This is the little warning. Those of you who are here for Joanna Trollope are familiar with the technique, so that you can. Um, <laughs> compose your thoughts. But the, the, the last thing before we do that was I was utterly fascinated by the czars. Oh, yeah. am, I, am I saying that in the, the right way? Yeah. Could you tell us about that? Um, alongside this incredibly, you know, um, enacted always um, Orthodox Christianity, there are sort of older traditions of spirit. I mean, older and, and also utterly parallel because one of the beliefs about them was that Eve had how many was it 20, like 24 children 12 12 children of the light and 12 children of the darkness because they were most beautiful and, and she hid them away to protect them um, and the idea is that they, they sort of ride you know particular times of the year and they choose they choose a person to enter and um, and my grandmother was quite involved in this I think I mean, I did do quite a lot of reading about it, and I'm interested in it largely as a kind of way of, it was a very, very structured, it was like church, state, home, particular roles, and I think it was a really interesting way of having an outlet for emotions that had no outlet elsewhere. Um, so you could, you, there were particular meetings, there were particular, um, there was a, you know, People experienced a kind of possession, um, but I think that I, I think they're very interesting, emotional, um, emotional moments where they were kind of a release. For yeah, it was not possible to find that release elsewhere, and it gave her a kind of power in her own marriage, I think, as well, um, because he feared it. He, I mean, the, the, the church knew about it. The church, they did not. They didn't necessarily approve, but they didn't try to do anything about it because they kind of knew it, you know, it kind of existed alongside. Um, but yeah, no, it was it, it was very interesting to look into. It had its own language. It has its own it has its own very mirrored structures. So the czars had exactly, you know, if you have 
Ethiopian you know, society was you know, very, very stratified, you know, nobility, gentry, all that kind of stuff, and the czars were exactly the same, and it was, all, it was sort of almost a mirror world. Um, but yeah, no, she, I think it was important to her. Well, I, felt, I don't know if you're ever looking for a novel subject, but I would have read, I would have read lots more about that. Um, and again, that interesting point of it was a, it, it was a way in which... Um, see my, like if, if there weren't other things I could go and do, you could mm. see why a kind of a creative woman who wasn't even allowed to do a lot in the way of dancing would, right. would, would find that as something that you could, that you could do. Um, or indeed many explanations for it. But I th again, I just thought you did a lovely job of just, mm. of just not, you know, not feeling the need to comment or editorialise or judge or any of that. Just lay out her experience for us. But, um, who would like to ask Ida a question? I'm going to come to this gentleman straight away, and if I could ask you to wait until I hand over the microphone. Thank you. Uh, could you say something about your grandmother's experience under Mengistu? Um, I mean, and, and by that point, I mean she was she was much old, she was much older at that point. So I mean, like every, I mean she, she like everybody else, you know, when they when they nationalised the land, she lost all her land, and so and she lost and, and when my grandfather had built some rooms that she could rent out as income, and she lost all of that. So you know, again, it was the experience of of, of everybody. Um, and obviously, the, it was, the revolution was followed by the Red Terror, um, and that happened. You know, the prison was the prison was around the back of her house. So when they did the, when they, you know, they, they had they would they would, in the day, they would be the sort of basic criminal, you know, people would be brought. But in the evening, they brought the political prisoners, and then they would shoot them. Um, you know, and all of that was very, you know, you could hear it. So, um, but you know, and, and all the sort of rationing and all that kind of stuff, it was the same, it was very similar, you know, experience to almost anybody who was living in that time. Hello, I was really interested in um, the fact that you decided to adopt her viewpoint and I just wondered if there were any gaps, I don't mean so much factual gaps, but were there any points that you felt it's quite hard, I, you know, it's almost like I don't have the authority or, you know, um, I can't go there imaginatively, were there mm. any challenges like that? Always, yes. Um, I guess one of the, and there's gaps everywhere, although, and I, you know, if, I sort of like, oh, I'll just own the gaps. I'll just skip. This is the thing I, you know, I realised. It's like, well, you know, if I don't know it, I'll just go to the next thing. <laughs> but um, more seriously, the thing that I did have was seventy odd hours of tape, and I, whenever I kind of didn't, you know, felt like I was out on a limb, I would quite often go back to the tape. And there's quite a lot of this, which is direct translation. It's just what she said to me. Um, and I try to go around the context so that it is clear that when she talks about a particular process, for example, it's clear what the process is because she wouldn't have had to explain it to me, but she, I do, you know, so I tried very much to do it in her words if I possibly could. Um. Thank you, very interesting question. Um, yes, this lady down here. Oh, I think my microphone started working a bit, hasn't it? <laughs> That's exciting. Um, 
you said that she was eight when she got married. Mm. But when, how old was she when she first had her child? That's one question. And the other question is, how many of the ten pregnancies survived? Um, I, she was about fourteen, I think. Um, and the, the the final pregnancy didn't come to term. Um, one died as a cot death. One died when there was six, seven. So yeah, which is really decent. Oh, I mean, like <laughs> she did really well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the process of translation. Mm. Um, did you translate your grandmother's words, and what particular problems did you have? I mean, you mentioned earlier this form of poetry for which there isn't an English word. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, I just wonder how, how widespread that was as a, a problem in terms of the translation. Um, it was. It's a very. It, it was a big problem, in, and it's an incredibly rich language, and it's very. I mean, when I sort of talk about religion, the, the, the Bible threads through everything. So if you don't know your Bible, you're in trouble. And, and there's a huge you know, web of tradition that goes along with it. And what I actually ended up doing was I translated, I mean, it took me about a year, but I was working full time. I translated it all, so I had a sort of massive transcript. And then I did loads of you know, research in the British Library and suddenly realized that there's all sorts of stuff that I just hadn't heard. So masses of stuff which, which she was relate she was she was referring to particular <coughs> proverbs or stories or and I just I hadn't known they existed, so I didn't hear them. And after I'd done all that research, I went and trans trans translated it all again. Um, so I listened to everything again and I was just like, oh my god, there's all this other stuff in it and there's all these echoes. Um, and hope you know, I did them a bit, but it was I mean I spent there's a massive two-volume. Um, I don't know if you know anything about the Ethiopian alphabet, but there's there's a lot of it, um, and so I spent a lot, you know, weeks at a time with the dictionary, just kind of trying to work out, you know, what not just what the main meaning of the word was, but what it's, you know. And I can't claim to have got it all, but I, you know, had, had a go. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about this lovely word. Um, Aizosh? Aizosh. Yeah. That's not very translatable either. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a sort of fairly all-purpose, you know, it's all right, take, you know, be, you know, take heart, be, mm. but I, you know, she sent to her all the time, but it, it, it just depended on the context, yeah. how you inflected it, but it I was a kind of it, caring. I yeah. love the way it threads through the book and different people say it to different people at different times. It felt like something that you, I don't know, almost like earn the right to be able to say to someone or... Yeah. Maybe reciprocally, like sometimes someone needs to say it to you, and sometimes you need to say it back <laughs> to the same person. Yeah. No, it's a kind of it's it's. It, I don't know if emphatic is the right word, but it's a kind of it has a it has this very it's a word that can be yeah you can use it. It's almost like punctuation, but it's much more than that. Mm. It's kind of comforting, mm -hmm. the comfort word. <laughs> Another question? Yes. Can we come to this lady? Did you travel in Ethiopia before you wrote the book? And did that kind of inform your writing a lot more with the experience of, of getting to know the country? Or did you know it from I childhood? I So I, I was born there, and I, I lived there until I was 15. Um, and then obviously I went back and forth. So 
you know, with the food. And although her recipes were very detailed, and she told me them at great length, um, <laughs> <laughs> I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to work how, how they worked. Um, there was some of it that I didn't have to research. So some of the physical um, or geographical things. So I was just like, I was just going back to my own childhood to, um, so yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, I wondered, because you said a bit about that your grandmother had changed her perspective throughout her life, mm. and I wondered how she felt latterly about having got married at, at eight years old, and I wondered how your dad viewed his kind of um, the child marriage in his parents' relationship, having lived in Canada for a long time, where, it, where it's obviously illegal. Um, well, I mean, given that it was his, you know, his parents, he obviously took it I mean, she, it was, it's been illegal for a very long time. It doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily, I think it occasionally still happens in the countryside, but it's been illegal for decades. Um, I think she, she felt sorry for herself as a child. I think she, you know, she felt it was not right. Um, I, I think, I, but there were two things that happened to her. So one was that, one was that she was married. I mean, she wasn't necessarily, you know, as a sort of full marriage, I don't think that happened until she was in her teens. Um, but, but in that year that he went away, her mother died. And I think that, I think that her mother dying and her feelings sort of awful actually kind of, was it one of the things actually, in some ways, more powerful than having, but yeah, I mean, she, she didn't approve. She, you know, she, she you know, she, so it's much better now <laughs> that you got to, and the other thing I, is, is that marriage, it wasn't kind of, so she was married in the church in a very particular indissoluble marriage, but actually there were all sorts of types of marriage, ranging from marriages of very specific convenience. So you could, you could officially be married for like three months um, because somebody, you know, a traveling salesman was living there and it was completely fine. Or you could, or you could be married when you were sort of in your early teens and if it didn't work out, that was fine too. It was a starter marriage and you could move on. Um, women, you know, women always took, and if it worked, well, great, but, you know, um, the other thing I think is interesting is that women would come into a marriage with, you know, land or, and they took it with them when they left. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't as it was here, for, for instance, where, you know, your goods and your... Handed over. Were handed over. It was, it was hers and she took it away. So there, this was a very specific kind of marriage, which is... It is done with, the, with communion and it's indissoluble, but very few people actually do that. And she didn't choose that, and I think you know, that was... Um, I mean, she didn't choose any of it, but... <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think... I wonder if anybody else is now thinking, I quite like the sound of three months <laughs> <laughs> because I haven't said it, for those of you who haven't read it yet, it is a beautifully written book. Um, I, I quite liked the fact that I didn't know... I don't know where the beauty of the prose is coming from. I don't know the extent to which it's you, the writer, whether it's your grandmother speaking it in the original language, whether it's the transcription. I think it's one of the things that really adds to the reading experience. 
And one of the many things that it's been interesting to hear you talk about how that process mm. worked. But, um, but yes, uh, every sentence is a joy. So I would urge you, if you, haven't, if you have yet to get the book to get it, um, Ida's going to go and sign it in the book tent. Patrick, are you taking over from me in any way, or am I...? I think it's so beautifully... <laughs> I just wanted to remind everyone about the church service tomorrow. Yes. And after you said that, someone in the audience said, what time is 11 it? 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock. So... Miss Horatio Clare, we can run across. Yes. <laughs> so um, I would just like all of us to say thank you for this thank extremely you. cool hour. Thank you.